Hello, and welcome to another edition of Across the States. I'm your host, Matthew Fisher, bringing the premier state policy podcast, courtesy of the American Legislative Exchange Council. For today's episode, we will listen to a conversation last week between Carla Jones, Senior Director of the ALEC Task Forces on International Relations and Federalism, and Arya Lightstone, Senior Advisor to former U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman and Special Envoy for Economic Normalization. Together, Carla Jones and Arya Lightstone will discuss economic and diplomatic dynamics of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Now, let's go to that conversation from last week in the last Policy Hour. I'm Carla Jones, Senior Director of International Relations and Federalism here at ALEC. And Arya, it's an honor to have you here with us today. So, Thank you. Thank you. First of all, you were at the embassy at a genuinely momentous time for U.S.-Israel relations. For those in attendance who may be a little less familiar with U.S.-Israel relations, could you describe how the Trump administration's policies towards Israel were a total paradigm shift? Absolutely, I can. Look, many things with President Trump were were a paradigm shift. The irony is the candidate who ran on the America First platform did more to strengthen our alliances around the world than any previous president, certainly in my lifetime. And I'll tell you why. Every so often, you're able to have the right ambassador at the right time who does not relay the information and add commentary to the information, but actually sets the policy on the ground. And when you have somebody that the president trusts implicitly, you have the ability for that to happen. So we were very much, or we, I was very much in the right place at the right time to be part of making history happen. Oftentimes, people construe the Trump policy towards the state of Israel during the four years in office as a pro-Israel policy. That's no different than saying lowering taxes in America is a pro-America policy. Of course it is. When you're elected to lead the United States of America, you better be sure that you have a pro-America policy. The policy that President Trump demonstrated towards the state of Israel was absolutely an America first policy. And I don't mean that in the campaigning terms. I mean that in the philosophical terms. Every decision that the United States of America made during the four years of President Trump was in the best interest of the United States of America. And I'll walk you through some of them so you can see what I mean by that. In 1995, there was the Jerusalem Embassy Act that was passed by a broad bipartisan majority that required three things. Number one is the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem, the opening of the ambassador's house in Jerusalem, and the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. All three of those things were required, and it was passed broadly by a bipartisan Democrats and Republicans in Congress by a supermajority. However, we all know Congress does not make foreign policy, so within the bill, in order for it to be constitutional, it had a national security waiver that if the president at his or her discretion decided every six months that it was not in the national security interest of the United States of America to follow the law that was passed, then they were able to waive their obligation to follow the law. So every six months from 1995 until 2019, the president of the United States of America signed that waiver. And there was a collective groan from the people who cared about our foreign policy. Now, the first waiver that was up for the president of the United States of America, President Trump, was January 22nd, 2017. Now, with respect to the president, I'm not positive he knew where the restroom was 
by the time we got around to January 22nd, 2017. And he correctly signed the waiver because he and his advisors next to him said, perhaps there's something that we will know when we read the intel that we don't know when we're pundits from across the aisle. Granted, President Trump promised that he would recognize Jerusalem, move the embassy and open the ambassador's house. But perhaps there's something that sitting every other president who had run also made that promise. So perhaps there's something that they knew that we didn't know. So we'll figure it out when we get there. President made the correct decision in January 2017. The next waiver was up, as you can calculate, six months in June of 2017. The president signed the waiver again. At that point in time, there was a collective shrug. Here we go. Another politician who promises but does not deliver. And from that moment on, uh, just as an aside, two days after the president signed the waiver, the United States Senate, if you remember the United States Senate in June of 2017, not exactly the most unified body in the United States of America, passed 91 to nothing, a resolution condemning the president for not following the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 because he signed the second waiver. 91 to nothing, they signed the waiver condemning the president. David Friedman, Ambassador David Friedman at that point in time, said it will be his life's mission to make sure that the president has all of the information that he needs to make, in his opinion, the correct decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and not sign the next waiver. And David, when he puts his mind to something, succeeds. And he spent an enormous amount of time with the president, with the CIA, with the Pentagon, et cetera, et cetera, making sure that this indeed was the correct decision. After he was convinced it was the correct decision, he pushed forward and the president in a bold and courageous decision on December 6, 2017, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. May 14, 2018, opened up the embassy in Jerusalem, and it took nine months after that, but in March of 2019, opened up the ambassador's home in Jerusalem. Also, therefore, fulfilling the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 by the time we got to 2019. Why do I say this was in America's interest? Because the best way to explain this from my perspective is Menachem Begin, who was a conservative prime minister of Israel in the early 80s, had his first meeting with Margaret Thatcher. And it was very exciting because these were two greats of the conservative movement. And uh, Begin was peppered with questions from the press before he went to meet with Thatcher. Are you going to ask Margaret Thatcher to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? And Menachem Begin paused and he thought for a moment and he said, I suppose I might but only if she asked me to recognize London as the capital of the United Kingdom. You see, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel 1,900 years before anybody heard of the island of the United Kingdom. And so therefore, if she wants me to state the obvious, I'll ask her to state the obvious. What do I mean by this? Israel did not need the United States of America to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Israel recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It's where their Knesset is, their House of Parliament, it's where their Prime Minister sits, it's where their President sits. It's where the Supreme Court sits. It has all the indicia of a capital of a country. From 1995, it was the law of the land of the United States of America to do so. The only people that we were hurting by not following that law was us. We did not have a foreign policy that we were proud of. We did not have a foreign policy that we would stand up for. And frankly, we had an apologetic approach to our number one ally in the region. Could you imagine to cozy up to some of the other countries in the region, we sort of hid Israel behind our back as a secondary friend, one that we couldn't be seen in public with. Uh, it's insane. Israel is the only democracy in the region. It's the only vibrant free economy in the region. It's the only country that serves with us in terms of intel and defense. It defends itself by itself. The only thing that it needs is intel and military technology sharing. 
It is our number one ally, and we did not embrace it. Why did we not embrace it? And with this, Carl, I will answer your dangerously open-ended question. We did not embrace it because the Palestinians felt that they had a veto on progress in the region. The Palestinians felt that as long as they could convince the other countries around the region that we haven't gotten what we want from the state of Israel, so you can't get what you want from the state of Israel or from the United States of America either. You must be hands-off. You must be distant. And the Palestinians won because they convinced the United States of America that we cannot be proud of our number one ally in the region as long as peace had not broken out miraculously in between Israel and Palestinians. I'm not sure if we're even going to get to that issue later, but the foreign policy of the United States of America is very clear. We stand for ourselves and we stand for our allies. When we open up the embassy in Jerusalem. You were also the lead negotiator for the Abraham Accords. Could you give us an overview of what the Abraham Accords are? And you partially answered the second part of that question, which is what helped bring them to the table? Fantastic. So first of all, they're going to award the Nobel Prize fairly shortly for peace for the last year. It's not going to go to President Trump. It's not going to go to Bibi Netanyahu. It's not going to go to Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. It's not going to go to King Hamid of Bahrain. It's not going to go to King Mohammed of Morocco. And it's a fraudulent prize because if any other president or any other group of leaders had pulled off what was pulled off in the span of 72 days, completely and totally reshaping a region that to most of the world is known for chaos and destruction and turning them to peace and a beacon of light, it's just fraudulent. I mean, it's just another institution that we have lost our faith in. And I would encourage us as a community, we need to come up with our own recognition of the people. I'm not saying this because I was involved with this. I was involved with this and my family knows I was involved with this. And that's all I need. I don't need history books, nor do I deserve them. Uh, we made recommendations. The presidents and the leaders of the countries took courageous and bold decisions. Uh, Trump, Netanyahu, MBZ, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE and others. At the end of the day, they're the ones who were elected or appointed, and they're the ones who get blamed if it doesn't work. Those of us around them had a chance to work for them and work hard for them, but they deserve 100% of the credit. And the fact that an institution with the legacy of the Nobel Peace Prize won't recognize them, it's fraudulent. And we should know that to be fraudulent. So what are the Abraham Accords? Essentially, as I, as I began in the previous answer, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, each side has a superpower, ignoring the divine presence, which we can figure out where that plays out. I'll, I'll leave my rabbi hat on the side on this particular one. But two very natural superpowers. The superpower of Israel is the steadfast relationship with the United States of America. When the United States of America acts like a superpower, it is the single greatest force for good in the history of the world. When it acts like it does on occasion now, it is not, unfortunately. The Palestinians had a veto on progress in the region. And as long as those two things would butt heads, the veto was going to win. Because as long as the United States of America was not going to flex its superpower muscles to break through this logjam, there was going to be no meaningful breakthrough. Essentially, every peace plan, every peace activity was the same recycled, frankly, terrible thinking that wanted to squeeze Israel that's occurred since the Oslo Accords. And what normally happens during the process is they sit down at the table, the Israelis agree to something, the Palestinians nod and wink, they walk away from the table, they cause an intifada, they kill Americans and Jews and Israelis, then they come back to the table five years later and want to start with where they left off. And it's a fantastic negotiating technique. 
It's not exactly a peace partner. And what Jared Kushner and Ambassador Friedman, under the leadership of, of President Trump, decided to take this differently and said, let's paint a realistic picture of what peace in the region could look like. And they did that. On January 28, 2020, they put out a plan called the President Vision for Peace to Prosperity. You can read it. It's 180 pages. It's still online. It's a thorough, comprehensive peace vision that requires fairly basic things amongst them that the Palestinians should stop killing Palestinians for being gay. They should stop stealing from their people. They should stop incentivizing people to kill other people. All of these are basic things that we would expect for any other country showing up to a table. Why would we expect less from the Palestinians, the bigotry of the lowest expectations? So we raised the expectations. We said the Palestinians do deserve better. This is what it would look like if it were better. And if they choose to reach out their hand in peace, there will be a hand waiting for them on the other side. And Israel extended that hand uh, with tremendous courage and, frankly, guts and possibly political suicide by Prime Minister Netanyahu, saying that if there was a chance for a breakthrough, it would have to be under President Trump and Jared Kushner and David Friedman and Avi Berkowitz and Pompeo and Pence and, and all the people that you know well who are true heroes of the U.S.-Israel relationship, too many to mention in the time that we have. The opportunity was in front of the Palestinians. The Palestinians turned down the opportunity, and then COVID happened. Why is COVID relevant? COVID is relevant because every country in the world was affected in some meaningful way. And at that point in time, countries were forced to make a decision. What is in our interest? What is in our interest? And when countries around the world, they look to say, where is the solution? Where is the saving? Where is the savior going to come from, from a worldwide pandemic? They look to only two places. They look to the United States of America, the greatest bastion of innovation in the history of the world. And they look to Israel, which is the only thing close to it on this planet today, and said, if we're going to find a solution, it's going to come from one of these two places. And you know what? The UAE and Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan and Saudi Arabia and many other countries that have not yet joined the Abraham Accords said the exact same thing. And they said, if we can be closer with Jerusalem and Washington, D.C., we can do better for our people. Why are we not doing that? They said, well, we're not doing it because the Palestinians have told us we can't do that. And they said, well, are the Palestinians right in demanding this? And they looked back at the first three years of the Trump administration and they said, well, Trump stood with Jerusalem. They stood with the Golan Heights. They stood with the Peace to Prosperity Plan, but they also put a $50 billion incentive plan for the Palestinians. They put out a realistic plan for the Palestinians, not a plan based upon a narrative, but based upon facts on the ground. And said, well, if they're not willing to negotiate based upon reality, what are they willing to negotiate on? And the answer is nothing. It's their narrative of the highway. It's like the little kid who, if he doesn't score the point, he takes the ball and goes home. You don't let your kid play with that kid a second time. It's not a fun way to play a game. So why are we going back to the well over and over and over again? So the other countries sat there and said, how do we get out of the mess of COVID? How do we jumpstart our economy? How do we jumpstart our innovation? How do we jumpstart our ability to address future pandemics? And the answer is, if you look at the Middle East, and just this evening, you can see Expo 2020, now called 2021 in Dubai. It just launched this evening with a fantastic opening ceremony. If you look at the Middle East, there are two pillars of light. There's the United Arab Emirates with innovation and infrastructure like you've never seen before, and the state of Israel. And those two pillars of lights are great allies of the United States of America, but they wouldn't talk to each other. So we, the United States of America, came and said, maybe you guys should start talking with each other instead of through us. And it actually was not all that hard from there. The UAE, on August 13th, 2020, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the United Arab Emirates, had a phone call with President Trump 
And Prime Minister Netanyahu has privileged to be in the Oval Office with a select group of people during that call. And Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of the UAE, said this best. He says, what is 2020 going to be known for? It's going to be known for COVID. We as leaders, are we satisfied with playing defense this entire year? Or can we do something to change this region for the better? And therefore, I'm extending my hand, although nobody shakes hands these days. I'm extending my elbow bump in peace. And Prime Minister Netanyahu was waiting there on the other end. And President Trump knew that it was only because we stood so close with Israel did it create the opportunity for this historic peace. Now, just, just from August 13th, the first phone call, until December 23rd, when a memorandum of understanding was signed with Morocco, there were five unique normalization and peace deals signed with Israel in 72 days. Never in the history of Middle East diplomacy has so much positive progress without a single, not, not a death, not a riot, not a protest, not in anything in any of those countries occurred in order to formulate peace. And the answer is, is that these Abraham Accords will bring prosperity and security, not just to those countries, but it makes the United States of America much stronger, much more efficient, and much more effective. All right. First of all, you do deserve a lot of credit for the Abraham Accords and for strengthening U.S.-Israel relations. So I'm giving you the credit. I want to get into innovation in a couple of questions. But before that, which countries do you think are going to be the next to normalize relations with Israel? And how has Iran responded to the Abraham Accords? Excellent questions. First of all, Iran is shaking in its boots because previously its enemies were divided. Now its enemies are united and becoming more united. And when our allies stand up in the region, it creates a very different force in the region. Look, the Middle East is very simple. When there's no leadership, there's a vacuum. When there's a vacuum, there's chaos. When there's chaos, there's terror. When there's terror, people die. That's what happens. You'll see this in Afghanistan. Uh, This is clear as day as to what's going to happen over there. I'm not advocating nation building. I'm advocating security. Israel defends itself by itself. Bahrain, itself by itself. The UAE, itself by itself. Morocco, itself by itself. Sudan's a separate story. We can talk about that another time. But these are all countries that are spectacular allies of ours. When they work together, it makes us slash much safer. There's no reason for us to have that many troops in the Middle East, enough to support our allies, but that's it. And mostly in a supportive role. We could have done that in Afghanistan. We will be doing that in the Middle East. Iran is terrified. And if, if the current administration wasn't, wasn't rolling over in every possible way to a country, a regime uh, that was on the ropes when they got it, uh, again, the foreign policy of Iran and the Palestinians was one and the same from 2017 until 2020. Hope Trump loses. When your enemies are rooting in our election, we should pay attention to that. And my hope is very clear. I wake up every morning and I pray for Joe Biden's success, President Biden's success, because his success is the success of America. It is dangerous to have these flip-flops on foreign policy. It is mind-boggling why anybody thinks that approaching Iran in this way is pro-America, that anyone thinks supporting Muslim Brotherhood is pro-America. It's not. They are dangerous ideals, and I dare say they're anti-American. It, it really is. We, we need an, a, a pro-America foreign policy, and that should be adopted by both policies. I, I said every day from August 13th until December 23rd, actually until January 20th, uh, people said, why are you doing peace now? I said, because peace is not a Republican ideal. It's not a Democratic ideal. 
It's an American ideal. And I'm confident that the American people know that and believe that. I'm sorry that some of their elected leaders don't. So that's the Iran issue. You asked, uh, and what are the future countries? The Alex people are going to love this answer. I will not tell you what I think the next countries will be, but I will tell you it's the following thing. You can have as many social Democrats as you want in Congress, and as many people who think that socialism works, they are wrong. The world is capitalist. If the Abraham Accords are a net benefit to the participants, those accords will expand. If they are a net detriment, the accords will shrink. It's very, very simple. When Jordan signed a peace treaty with Israel, it didn't get any major benefits outside of water and security with Israel. The same thing with Egypt. With the UAE, with Bahrain, with Morocco and others, the economic, the innovation, the tourism industries have gone through the roof even during COVID. The benefits are tangible and present. If the U.S. administration doesn't give lip service to it, but gives elbow grease to it, they should have 11 more countries signed up by the end of next calendar year. It's that simple. It really is that simple. It just requires the United States of America doing something that it knows how to do, which is to lead and not to follow. Going back to another point you made about people thinking the Middle East is about chaos, is about conflict, they end up overlooking the vast regional economic opportunities in the Middle East. One reason for Israel's prominence is their leadership in R&D, and that's something you referenced before as well. A lot of people aren't familiar with how much of a leader Israel is in R&D. If you could go into that and then talk a little more specifically about the regional economic benefits of the Abraham Accords. Sure. I'll start with part B and then go into part A. Part B from American infrastructure and defense companies and sort of our major players who play overseas in the Middle East, oil and gas, et cetera. There was always this artificial division. You have to do business in the Gulf or with Israel, but not with both. The Abraham Accords has punctured that myth. Uh, Frankly, it wasn't a myth. It was a reality up until about five years ago. Now, it's not only not a reality, it's illegal uh, in the UAE and Bahrain and others to ban companies that do business with Israel. So U.S. companies used to have either two headquarters or have to pick or choose which of the countries they were going to do business with. Now we can set up a Middle East office in Tel Aviv or Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Manama or Riyadh and do business throughout the entire Gulf region. For American companies, that allows us to be more competitive with the Chinese companies and the European companies. If we stand there and plant our flag figuratively and literally and explain that doing infrastructure deals across the region with American companies will guarantee and solidify the alliance with the United States of America for the next 50 to 100 years, they will only do business with American companies. They are not price sensitive like the places that we lose out to other places. They're quality sensitive. And American companies deliver the highest quality. It doesn't mean we can rip them off and it doesn't mean that they're 80% margins, but it means that we can deliver an American quality product at an American quality price with the American flag standing behind us if the U.S. administration and the states will support this. And they can do that. And the best way to do that is to have our embassies energized to bring out U.S. companies there and actively work with the state. There, other than Israel, most of the major contracts are awarded by the ruling families. The United States of America can advocate that we win those. We don't do it well enough. We need to do it harder, and we can do it. We've got talented people in all of those embassies. And here's the advantage. Because of the nexus with Israel, almost all of the companies in that region are not familiar with doing business with Israel. 
all the U.S. companies can or should be, and therefore have a first mover's advantage. So that's B, the regional opportunity. A, Israel has more companies listed on the stock exchange than any country but the United States. It has more money invested per capita in Israeli startups than any country, including the United States. There were more startups founded and funded in Israel this calendar year than in the United States. Not per capita, gross, than in the United States. The amount of innovation that's coming out of Israel is, I don't want to say incomprehensible, it's, it's enormous. And the reason why they did that and succeeded in doing so is because Israel did not have any allies that they can pass regular commerce through. So therefore, they needed to come out with things that could be exported regardless of borders. And so they turned into a software uh, and life science uh, research and development country. It's a small country. There are 9 million people here, not a lot of consumers. Nobody around them buys their stuff either. So they needed to produce technology and intellectual property that would be consumed by the largest consumers in the world, first and foremost, the United States of America. If you have a company, either you on the private sector or you representing a company that plays a major role in your district, reach out to me through Lisa or Carla, et cetera, and figure out how Israeli innovation can make that company more competitive, can make that company more successful, can bring more business to your state. Uh, it's absolutely achievable. And uh, and economics are going to make the world go around. Economics are going to make the Abraham Accords win. Economics are going to strengthen the U.S.-Israel relationship. Economics are going to make your state more important, your state is ultimately is what's going to hold the United States of America together while we're going through challenging times like we have today. Now, do you think the momentum behind normalization of relations with Israel might have a spillover effect that might lead other countries outside the Middle East to seek closer ties with Israel or at least to stop bashing Israel and the U.N.? So the U.N. is a funny place. And when I say funny place, it's a horrendous, terrible place that really shouldn't exist. Um, but that's not my official diplomatic opinion. That's just that's just uh, any place that 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 ninety percent of its quality of product is blatant anti-Semitism probably doesn't belong in New York. Uh, and the president had that right as well, as did Nikki Haley, and as did uh, our second uh, ambassador to the UN, who was spectacular as well. We started taking names and we started putting people into place. If the United States of America does not lead there. We're not going to win in the UN, which is fine. The UN is relatively irrelevant, other than the Security Council. Uh, it shouldn't be. It would be nice if it was relevant. Now, the spillover is not likely to be all that successful without the United States of America leading. I will take this opportunity now for a completely and totally unsolicited request from Alex and from your state, from your governors and from your legislators to do the following thing. When the federal government doesn't step up, it's your place. And frankly, instead of the federal government, it's probably your place anyways. I know foreign policy is not necessarily in the bailiwick of the average state uh, official by intention, but it certainly is by passion and by interest, especially when it means standing up for our allies. I would argue that the Iron Dome vote, as well as the fiasco in Afghanistan, has brought foreign policy to be relevant to your voters more than it has been in years. I'll make three comments and try to make them concise. The first is, there will be another battle with Israel like there is with Gaza. The Gazans will shoot rockets from kindergartens at kindergartners in Israel, committing a double war crime. And people will hem and haw and question whether Israel has a right to defend itself or not, as we saw this vote in Congress. Here's my argument to all of you. Stop using the language of Israel has a right to defend itself. 
it, it used to be sort of the, the rallying cry of the pro-Israel movement. We've done ourselves an enormous disservice. Israel does not have a right to defend itself. That's like me saying that you have a right to defend your family when somebody comes into your house. The second you frame that as a right, somebody else can question when that right begins, when that right ends, and do you truly have that right? That right is not negotiable. Israel has an obligation to defend its citizens. It is the first obligation of a country to its citizens, which is why what happened in Afghanistan is one of the most horrendous things I've seen in my lifetime. You are not allowed to abrogate your right, your obligation to your citizens. It's not negotiable. It's not questionable. You don't get to wake up in the morning and decide whether this citizen matters or this citizen doesn't matter. That's not your choice. You don't get that. I remember once, sorry for going on a tangent, but I have to share this. I remember once when we opened up the embassy in Jerusalem, so people love to come and visit and they love to take a picture by the plaque. There was one lady who looked at the plaque and she says, oh, he's not my president. And so I changed my normal normal speech that I give at the, uh, the U.S. Embassy about Trump's name on top. Uh, and I, I changed my, I said, you know, there's something fascinating. U.S. embassies around the world field 3 million phone calls, 3 million phone calls a year from U.S. citizens, 3 million phone calls from people who are put in jail, have lost their passport, have run into an issue, have a bereavement issue, have a birth issue, have a whatever. 3 million people call our operators every single year. And you know what the operator does not ask them? They don't ask them who you voted for. They don't ask them if you paid taxes. They don't ask if you're a convicted felon. They ask you one question, one question only. Are you an American? And if the answer is yes to that, then we extend ourselves to the full extent of the law to protect you and to guard you and to save you. That's what we do because you're American. It's not a right. It's not something that we question. It's an obligation of our country to our citizens. Israel does not have a right to defend itself. Israel has an obligation to defend itself. I, I'd like if we can have some form of resolutions going around the state or, 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 or whatever else it would be to maybe we change the nomenclature. You have nine members of Congress who decided that Israel does not have a right to defensive weaponry when they're being shot at from kindergartens to kindergartens. That's not an anti-Israel resolution. That's an anti-America resolution. That's somebody who is anti-human life. That is somebody who's clearly a blatant anti-Semite or a moron, likely both of those. Uh, I, again, I can't be more harsh about this because it's just insane. And when we allow this type of speaking in the highest levels of the United States of America, that message is seen around the world. And people question whether our alliance is rock solid or not. Israel will be fine. I promise you. If America decided tomorrow not to defend Israel and not to stand with Israel, Israel will figure out. They really are. They're very resilient. They know how to do lots of stuff. They'll be okay. They have divine protection. They'll be okay. America will fail. America will not have the moral backbone to do what we need to do. If we cannot stand up for the state of Israel and the region, then what are we going to stand up for? The answer is nothing. We will have lost why we're Americans. And that's important. It doesn't change what it means to be American, but it's a fundamental issue in that. Um, so that was part one and part two. Part three is the following thing. COVID stinks. I know it stinks. Uh, I know most of us can't travel. I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one is when you can plan a state or a legislative or a however you want to figure it out, visit to Israel, bring your businesses that will benefit from the market here, be in touch with me in advance. I'll set you up with all the people. I wish I could charge a commission. I don't. I probably should uh, to be able to, uh, to, to, make, uh, to make those business connections happen. And then add another stop on your visit to the region. Stop in Bahrain. Stop in UAE. Stop in Morocco. You don't need to stop in Sudan yet. You can stop in Kosovo. Pick a place that means something to you from a values perspective, a business perspective. And I will connect you with the leadership of those countries. 
and you need to show up and to say one thing, say thank you. You don't need to do anything else. Again, I'll, I'll connect you with great experiences, great business opportunities, all of those things. But you show up and say thank you. If we, the United States of America, do not give a peace dividend to those who extend their hand in peace to our number one ally in the region, then who's going to give that peace dividend? And if you want there to be a spillover effect throughout the rest of the world, we are the ones who cause a spillover effect. Nobody else leads in this world. If the United States of America doesn't lead, there's a vacuum and a crisis of leadership. The UAE, Bahrain, Morocco are waiting for the United States of America to say, there's a peace dividend. It's in our interest to stand with you. Get your governors to go there. You tell them, lieutenant governors, your mayors, your companies, show up and say, thank you. And you can tell them a little passion about this. Uh, I beg you to join me in this mission. I think it's very, very important. You've been listening to the conversation between Carla Jones, Senior Director of the ALEC Task Forces on International Relations and Federalism, and Arya Lightstone, Senior Advisor for former U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman and Special Envoy for Economic Normalization. Thank you for joining us today on Across the States. Again, be sure to tune in again next time for more of the Premier State Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as always, and I'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.